Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. I've been saying this over and over again during the last few months, and I'm going to keep saying it. We are not the Bible's primary audience. We do not live in the Bible's primary culture. We do not speak the Bible's primary language. We read the Bible over the shoulders of the original audience. Now, hear me, that doesn't mean that it's not true for us. It doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to our lives, but it does mean that failing to understand the Bible inside of its culture and context can have disastrous consequences. You see, just just taking verses out of their culture and context and using them to justify whatever beliefs we already hold, it's dangerous. This is how cults are started with the Bible as their guidebooks. This is how slavery is justified using Bible verses. This is how wars are declared in the name of God. This is also how we've developed a deeply flawed picture of hell. We've taken the word hell, which is an old English word originating more than 700 years after Jesus, and we've developed a picture of it based on medieval torture chambers and books like Dante's Inferno, the clips and the images we just saw, are, are, they're the tip of the iceberg. For most people, hell conjures up these images of, of fire and torture and torment. We then take that understanding of hell and apply it to every usage of hell in the Bible. Does that make sense? So we we make up a definition. We come up with our own definition of hell based on fictional literature and medieval torture, and then we apply that definition every time the Bible talks about hell. Then we write books and preach sermons on this flawed definition and disseminate understandings of hell to the world that are massively different from what the Bible actually teaches about it. Not great. Right. We, we can be better at this. We need to be better. It comes as no shock to most of us that the results of this have been a disaster. In fact, I, I identified two basic reactions to this unbiblical portrayal of hell, and, and they're both bad. Reaction number one is embracing this picture of hell. Many of us have embraced this understanding of hell because it's been taught to us by people that we trust, by people that we respect. But I think this definition of hell has massive implications for our understanding of who God is, of his character. Scripture teaches very clearly that God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because why? God is love. Not God does love, not even God always loves, but God is love. This is his primary characteristic. Every other characteristic 
flows through his love. Is he just? Of course. But his justice flows out of his love. Is he righteous? Is he holy? Yes, but, but that righteousness and holy is expressed through his love. Does he get angry? Yes, but his anger is loving and caring and just. This unbiblical understanding of hell paints a picture of God who is not love, a God who is sadistic and vindictive and malevolent. Is God sadistic? Does he derive pleasure from inflicting pain on his image-bearing creation? Everything I read in Scripture tells me no. Is God vindictive? Does he destine anyone who chooses to live their life apart from him to be burned alive and eaten by worms for eternity? Everything I know about God tells me no. Is God malevolent? Does he wish evil upon humanity? Every story of God graciously forgiving us and pursuing us with his love tells me no. You see, the danger of reaction one, of embracing this portrait of hell, is that it gives us a terribly unbiblical picture of who God is. It perverts his character. That's reaction number one. Reaction number two is denying the existence of hell altogether. And, and I get it, right? For some of you in this room, someone told you that hell is, is fire and brimstone and, and Satan with a pitchfork, and you were like, nah, I'm good. I'm not going to be about that. Theologian and author N.T. Wright likens this to walking away from a childish understanding of God. He says this, just as many who were brought up to think of God as a bearded old gentleman sitting on a cloud decided that when they stopped believing in such a being, they had therefore stopped believing in God. So many who were taught to think of hell as a literal underground location full of worms and fire, or for that matter, as a kind of torture chamber at the center of God's castle of heavenly delights, decided that when they stopped believing in that picture, so they stopped believing in hell. I've heard this reaction from so many people, so many of you, as we've sat across the table and had coffee or lunch together. But when someone who has this reaction sits across from me and says, I don't believe in hell, what they are actually saying for the most part is I don't believe in a place where God sadistically tortures people with fire and worms for eternity. You know what I tell them? I don't believe in that place either. I don't think that the biblical authors believed in that place. But I do believe in hell. And I think that the Bible teaches us about it. So now that I've made everyone upset, everyone uncomfortable, we are going to dive in and try to look at what the Bible actually says about this very controversial and difficult to understand topic. I'm going to do that by trying to answer two questions. Question one, who goes to hell? Question two, what is hell like? With me? Who goes to hell? What is hell like? My hope is that we walk away from this morning with a more biblical view of hell and a better understanding of who God is, of his character. Y'all ready? Okay, let's go. Like every other subject in the Bible, hell is best understood in the context of God's entire story. 
right? Those of you who have been with us over the last few months know that we've been doing this year in the story, basically spending a year looking at God's great story and our place in it. And we've learned a lot over the last few months. We've talked about creation. We've talked about the fall, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We've talked about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the start of the church, the work of the Holy Spirit. And then last week, we kicked off the series that we're in right now by looking at what the Bible says about heaven. So we've really covered kind of the the full gamut so far. And one of the major themes that we've touched on over and over again throughout this year in the story is this understanding that God lets us choose. God lets us choose. From Adam and Eve choosing to eat of the tree that God forbid of them in the Garden of Eden, to Cain choosing to kill his brother Abel, to the people of Israel choosing to turn their backs on God over and over again, to, to Peter choosing to deny Jesus, to Judas choosing to betray Jesus, all the way to us choosing to either trust God or trust ourselves every moment of every day, day after day, time after time, God lets us choose. He lets us choose. Now, this doesn't mean that God isn't in control. It doesn't mean that he can't come in and do whatever it is he wants. At the beginning of this year, we learned about God's creation of the whole world, how he sustains everything with his breath and with his hand. But he places some of that control in the hands of humanity, the people he created in his image. If you don't believe me, or if your kind of sovereignty of God radars are going off right now, just scroll through your favorite news app later. Look at the headlines. Look at some of the evil and brokenness that permeates our world, and then ask yourself, is God forcing humanity to lie, to steal, to oppress, to enslave, to murder? Certainly not. Those are our choices. He lets us choose. And the greatest choice that he gives to us is whether or not to receive the love he gives. He freely gives his love. He is love. He freely gives himself his love to us. But we have the choice. Receive it or not. We see this all through the biblical story that God relentlessly pursues humanity with his love. In fact, last week, we talked about this in relation to God bringing heaven to earth. So here's how we did it. Here's the first thing we showed you. In in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth in Eden, it was one place. Heaven and earth were all together. God and humanity dwelled. There was no God space in our space. It was just one space. It says that Adam and Eve and God walked and talked together in the garden. But then Adam and Eve made a choice and that choice separated it. And this is what it began to look like. Heaven and earth were separated. It was no longer heaven on earth. It was heaven and earth. You see what Adam and Eve really did when they they said, I I don't want to listen to you. I want to eat this tree regardless of what you say. What they were actually saying is we want to make the rules. We want to be in charge of our space. We want our own space. So God said, here you go. He separated heaven and earth. And then throughout different parts of the Old Testament, we see this little crossover of heaven and earth because even when Adam and Eve said, we want our own space, God didn't let that stop him, right? God comes after us, bringing more of his space into our space, more of heaven into earth. We see this through his covenant with Abraham. We see it through the temples that he built where where he indwells these temples and meets with his people there. 
We see this all throughout the Old Testament. And then that chasm became, or that crossover became fixed. That cross there in the middle. You see Jesus, God in the flesh, came down and permanently overlapped heaven and earth. Before that, the overlaps were, were spotty, right? God would create a temple, he would dwell there, and then the people would desecrate it, and he would leave. And then he would come back, he would indwell a tabernacle or something else, and, and we would always mess it up. But then he just said, I'm not going to allow you to mess it up anymore. I'm just going to send Jesus. And he's going to be this permanent overlap between your space and my space, heaven on earth. And he fixed that. It was amazing, right? Do you remember that when he died, the moment that he died, you may remember this story, the story, the veil in the temple tore in two from top to bottom. God said, I'm no longer relating to you through this temple, through this holy of holies, through this priest thing. I'm actually relating to you through me, through my son Jesus, who is here to stay with you. It's amazing. And then he resurrected and he began not only to give us life, but to offer us his life, to put his life in us, Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send my spirit to indwell you. And so you see those three little circles on the right there. That's, that's us. That's the church. He's tasked us not with leaving earth and going to heaven someday, but with bringing heaven to earth. Little pieces, little crossovers. We're going out more and more and sharing the characteristics of God's space, love and hope and beauty and mercy and justice with the world that is broken. That's what he's tasked us to do, to bring more and more of heaven to earth until he comes back and finishes that work of restoration. And here's what it looks like when he does that. New heaven and new earth is what the Bible calls that. The place where the crossover is complete. It's heaven on earth again, but now it's forever. When Jesus returns to complete his work of restoration, we said last week that we don't know a ton about the time in between when we die and when Jesus comes back the new heaven and new earth. There are really only three passages in scripture that talk about that in between time. If you miss that, you can go back and listen to it. But what those passages tell us is that anyone who is a part of God's family during that in-between time of death and Jesus coming back is with Jesus in God's presence. So when heaven and earth are united fully, once again, anyone who is a part of God's family who has died is resurrected into this perfect new body. And anyone who is still alive and is part of God's family is given that perfected body as well. And all of us spend eternity with God in the new heaven and new earth. That's the quick overview of the Bible story. But what about those who don't want to be a part of God's family? What about those who choose not to spend eternity with Jesus? What about people who choose not to receive the love God offers to them? I believe the Bible teaches that God honors that choice. He lets us choose, and then he dignifies our choice. God will not force us to receive his love. You see, for true love to exist, there has to be the possibility of it being rejected. Love that is forced is not love at all. Love is a choice. We must choose to give it and we must choose to receive it. Now, before we continue, I need to pause and say this message is not one where we will be talking about how people receive God's love. 
Okay, this is important. It's an important topic. We aren't going to be talking, though, about um, like the person in Africa who has never heard the name of Jesus or, or the child raised in another religion who never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. All right, that this isn't about if everyone gets an equal chance to choose the love of God or if people get another chance after they die. It's, it's not about that. Those are important topics, and I have opinions on them, but they are for another day. This isn't a message about how people are saved. It's about what happens when they choose not to be. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. This is not a message about how people are saved. It's a message about what happens to those who spend their entire lives actively refusing the love God offers, people who choose not to be saved. I believe the Bible teaches that people who receive the love of God spend eternity with him. And the people who refuse the love of God spend eternity without him. It's pretty simple. We have come to call this location of eternity without God, hell. The most popular scripture in, in all of the Bible is John three sixteen. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you receive the love of God through Jesus, you are destined for life. If you refuse the love of God, you are destined for death. Eternity with him, eternity without him. The choice is ours. I think the way C.S. Lewis puts it is incredibly helpful. He says, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Two kinds of people in the end. The ones who look at God and say, I'm yours. Thy will be done. And the ones whom God looks at and says, I'm not going to force you. Thy will be done. This is how the Bible answers our first question from the beginning of this message. Who goes to hell? It is those who actively refuse the love of God. God lets us choose and then he dignifies that choice. So that leaves us with our second and final question. What is hell like? Let's start with the actual usage of the term hell in the Bible. Now, frequency does not always equal importance, but it makes sense that the more you talk about something, the more it matters to you, right? We know this from spending time with people. If you've got a friend or a loved one and you're around them and they're always talking about something over and over and over again, you know those are the things that they're passionate about. Those are the things that they really care about. And the Bible is similar. Here are the most popular subjects in the Bible, ranked by how often the words are used. Lord, 6,750 times. God, almost 4,000 times. Israel, almost 2,500 times. Jesus, 13, 10. Makes sense, right? Those are four big ones. Okay? Those are four big subjects in the Bible. Here are a few other important ones and how many times they're used. Earth, 729. Heaven, 622. Spirit, evil, death, sin, judgment. All of those are, are frequently used, frequently discussed topics in the Bible. You want to know how many times hell is in the Bible? 13. It's mentioned 13 times. All in all, there are over 1,200 words the Bible uses more frequently than hell. 1,200 other things it talks about more than hell. Now, don't mishear me. 
I've already said I believe in it. I believe hell is important. I believe hell matters. And it's sometimes even discussed without using the actual word hell, right? Like we talk about it or a a biblical author talks about it, doesn't actually use the word. But in the grand scheme of the Bible's teaching, Western Christianity has significantly overrepresented hell in our writing and in our teaching. Significantly overrepresented it. But it's not just that we've overrepresented it. We've made it into something the Bible simply, simply does not teach. You might be surprised to hear that 11 of the 13 uses of the word hell come from the mouth of Jesus. He actually talked about it more than anyone else, but he didn't talk about it in the way that we often talk about it, the way it was portrayed in the video, in the images that usually come into our mind when we think about hell. Let me show you what I mean. Here's from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Six of the 11 uses by Jesus of the word hell are talking in this manner, either this story or the parallels of the stories in other gospel accounts. So six of the 11 uses, Jesus is saying, cut this part of your body off or your whole body is going to be thrown into hell. Jesus says it's better to cut our eyes out than to look lustfully at someone. And if we don't cut our eyes out and we do look lustfully, then our whole body is thrown into hell. We can easily look at this and know that Jesus' use of hell isn't an underground torture chamber with fire and brimstone, right? Because every single one of us have sinned with our eyes and with our hands. And yet none of us have cut off our eyes and our hands. And yet here we sit. We have not been thrown into hell. So we have to ask then, what is Jesus really trying to say here? I think the first thing we have to understand is that Jesus uses the same word in Greek that is translated into hell all of his 11 times he talks about it. It's the word Gehenna. And you may be surprised to know that Gehenna doesn't mean underworld. It doesn't mean place of fire or anything like that. Gehenna literally translates to the Valley of Hinnon. That's what Gehenna is. Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnon. It's a real literal place right outside the city of Jerusalem. When Jesus said Gehenna, every single person who heard it would know exactly what he was talking about because in Jesus' time, Gehenna was a trash heap. Right outside the city, people would burn their trash, their animal carcasses, and the bodies of criminals who were put to death by the government. They would just throw them into this big trash pile that just burned constantly day and night. In the Old Testament, Gehenna was also a real place, and it was a worse place. Look at the story of King Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike his father David, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the Valley of Hinnon. There it is. And sacrificed his children in the fire engaging in detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. 
So Gehenna is a place. It's a literal location, a place in the Old Testament where children were sacrificed and other pagan god worshiped occurred, and a place in the New Testament filled with fire and rotting garbage and carcasses. Now we know that literally hell is not a burning trash heap outside of Jerusalem, right? All of this, it helps us understand, like the original audience did, that Jesus and everyone else in the Bible who talks about hell is using metaphor and imagery to describe it, right? That Gehenna is not where hell is. Like, we're confident in that. In fact, I didn't bring one, but if I showed you a picture today, it's actually been completely redone, and it's a park. People take their dogs, and there's beautiful trees, and there's benches. Like, it's amazing. That he's using metaphor and imagery to talk about hell, to describe it. Other images used in Scripture are these. Fire, darkness, weeping, gnashing teeth outside the city walls. Again, I don't think that we try to take these images and build a blueprint of hell based on them. These are not like video camera footage. We've talked about this a lot, right? But the way that the Bible talks about history or the way the Bible describes places is not the way that we usually in our our kind of modern 21st century post-enlightenment scientific method eyes work. We don't do the same. When we talk about history or we describe something, we usually talk about it like surveillance camera footage. What does it literally look like? Like take a picture, describe it to me. But that's not the way they did it. They, They use things use metaphors and imagery to describe higher truths, to describe something bigger. We know that these can't all be literal descriptions of hell, right? Simply because fire and darkness can't coexist, right? It can't be dark and there be fire. Does that make sense? So we know these aren't all literal things that are exactly happening in hell. Instead, a better way that I believe to look at these is what they represent. Fire throughout scripture represents destruction. It's a place where things are, are burned up, where things are hurt, where they're in pain, where they're destroyed. Darkness is isolation. Being in the dark, right? We have that terminology. If somebody's in the dark, they don't know something. They're isolated from something. They're not a part of something. Weeping is sadness. Gnashing of teeth is, is bitterness. So when we look at something that's going on and we're jealous or we're upset and we grind our teeth about it. Outside the city walls is away from people that we love, away from the things we've known. There's something, a party, something positive going on inside the city walls, but somebody else has been cast outside the city walls. These are the images that are used to describe hell. Some places say these things go on forever, and other places say that it's temporary. For instance, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. The word destroy here means annihilate. It means gone forever. Beware of the one who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Destroy means gone forever. We also know that Gehenna, right, the word that we've been talking about that's used 12 of the 13 times hell is described in the Bible, was a place where dead people were thrown. It was not where living people were thrown. So people that had been executed by the government, children that had already been sacrificed, were thrown into this place. Honestly, the Bible doesn't tell us very definitively what hell looks like or how long it lasts. We don't, we don't have that much about it. We just don't know. But I think that the clearest picture actually comes from Paul. In his letter to the Thessalonian church, he says this. 
God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Here it says that God will punish those who refuse his love and refuse the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus, by shutting them out of his presence. That's the punishment. To put it simply, if you don't want to spend eternity in God's presence, he honors that decision. He lets us choose. But I think we can actually learn the most about what hell is like by leaning into our understanding of how God does this throughout Scripture. And here's how he does it. He removes his presence from people. And they are forced to deal with the consequences of their actions and their decisions on their own. When people actively refuse him, when they actively refuse his love, he does not force them. He removes himself from them. And they are now forced to deal with the consequences of their choices and their decisions. We spent four whole weeks in a series called Presence, where we looked at how God relentlessly pursues relationship with us, how he comes after humanity. But, but he doesn't force it on them. See, all throughout the biblical story, we see people actively refusing God's love and God allowing them to deal with the consequences of that choice. There's a biblical phrase for this. It's that God gives them over. God gives them over. He allows us to choose to refuse his love and to refuse his presence, and then he gives us over to the consequences of our choice. And make no mistake about it, the consequences of that choice are dire. They are terrible. They are not ones that I would wish on my worst enemy. We see this throughout Scripture. Started back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve made it clear that they wanted their own space, a place where they could be in charge, and God gives them over to that desire. He removes them from his presence, and they begin experiencing the terrible effects of life without God. Shame and guilt and pain and suffering. They're cast out of the garden, out of God's presence. They have to work the ground in their sweat and their toil. It's terrible. Outside the garden, Adam and Eve start a family. They have this boy named Abel, who is a shepherd, and another boy named Cain, who's a farmer. And they're supposed to bring their best offerings to the Lord. Abel does that. God is pleased with him. But Cain doesn't bring his best, and God is not pleased. Cain gets angry. He becomes jealous of Abel. And here is what God says to Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. God tells him flat out, don't give in to this sin. Trust me and I will take care of you. But many of you know the story. Cain does not trust God. He murders Abel and God gives him over to the consequences of opening that door to sin. Cain is cast out from his family and his life descends into more and more violence and chaos and tragedy. Later in the Old Testament, we have the story of Israel going to the promised land after God frees them from slavery in Egypt. God tells them not to practice the pagan religions that they are going to come into contact with. They go into the promised land, this land of Canaan. He says, drive out 
these other nations. Don't intermarry with them. Don't intermingle with them because their religions are so damaging and so dangerous that you do not want any part of them. But they don't listen. They start intermarrying. They start making treaties with these other nations and God gives them over to the consequences of these decisions. They say, we don't want you here, God. We want to do our own thing. We want to make the rules. We want to worship other gods if we want to. We want to build idols and sacrifice things. We want to do our own thing. And as God gives them over to the consequences of that decision, we see Babylon, a nation that Israel once thought were friends with them, defeat them and enslave the people of Israel. God gave them over. He removed himself. He said, if that's what you want, I'm not going to make you. I'm not going to force you. We even see this language of God giving us over in the New Testament. Romans 1 says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptile. Therefore, God gave them over their sinful desires. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. When God gives us over to our desire to be apart from him, the results are catastrophic. Life without his presence is hell. You hear me? Life without his presence, actively refusing his love is hell. We see glimpses of it all over this earth. I saw a glimpse of it this week. Uh, a lot of you know that um, Amy and I, my wife and I are foster parents. And uh, our foster child that we've had for the last six months or so uh, had a court date on Thursday. And what happens is you kind of get there to court about 9 a.m. and the judge roll calls the whole docket for the day and then he decides the, the order. So you have no idea if you're gonna be you know, seen at 9.15 or noon. And so usually it's somewhere in the middle and, and you just end up kind of sitting there and listening to all these other cases. One of these cases was about these four siblings that were in foster care. Three of them were in one foster home and one of them was all by himself in another foster home. The one by himself was a 16-year-old boy. He'd been kicked out of numerous foster homes, been kicked out of a couple of different schools for fighting and drug use. And his grandparents were in the courtroom that day and they were fighting to get custody, not of all four, but of his three siblings. So the judge asked, right? Like, what about the 16-year-old? And the grandparents said, we're not trying to get custody of him. And the judge was like, why not? And they said, he doesn't want to come. He doesn't want to be with us. He doesn't want to be with his grandparents. He doesn't want to be with his siblings. He doesn't want to be in school. He doesn't want to be in foster homes. He didn't want to be with anyone. 
You see, everything he'd been through and the choices he'd made had so hardened his little heart that he had turned his back on everyone trying to help him. I sobbed in the courtroom as I listened to that case. I began praying that his heart would soften and that he would stop refusing the love that was being shown to him. Because throwing all that love away, turning your back on the ones and the one who loves you most makes life hell. It makes it hell. That's how some of us are with God. Because of something that we've done or something that's been done to us, we think that we don't need God's love or that we don't want God's love or that we don't deserve God's love. We are so hurt or angry that we just refuse it over and over and over again. But if that's you, listen to me for a second. Refusing God's love does not make you stronger or smarter or justified in your anger. It just makes you hurt. It just makes you have pain. It just makes your life hell. I can't imagine anything worse than existence apart from God. I can't bear to think what it would be like to be given over to a life without his presence. There's nothing worse than that. There's one last instance of God giving over. I want to look at as we close. First Timothy two, five and six, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Galatians two, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 1, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. Jesus gave himself for us so that we would not have to be given over to the consequences of our sin. Isn't that amazing? He gave himself. We don't have to spend our lives and our deaths in suffering apart from God. He gave himself over to death on a cross so that we don't have to be given over to that same death. He brought his presence to earth and then he fills us with his presence by the Holy Spirit so that we will never have to experience life apart from his presence. He comes after us. He pursues us. He gave himself over so that we would not have to be given over. But this is the choice that God gives to us. One path leads to life with him. One path leads to life without him. And remember, he dignifies our choice. He honors the decision we make. Priest and theologian Henry Nouwen says it like this. Often hell is portrayed as a place of punishment and heaven as a place of reward. God does not send us to heaven or hell depending on how often we obey or disobey. God is love and only love. Hell is not God's choice. It is ours. We have this choice, life with him or life without him. And I'm not going to stand up here and yell at you about hellfire and brimstone and and worms that never die and, and try to scare you into faith in Jesus. 
Y'all know me well enough to know that that's not who I am. But I don't think it really matters exactly what hell is like or how long it lasts because being away from the presence of God, even for a moment, is the worst thing I can imagine. We know what happens when God is completely removed from somewhere. We know what life looks like when he gives us over to the consequences of our choices and our actions. Knowing that God is completely removed from somewhere is enough to know that I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It's enough to know for me that it's the worst place imaginable. If you're here and you've spent your life refusing the love of God for whatever reason, because you've been hurt, because you've hurt others, because you don't feel like you deserve it or because you feel like he's betrayed you. Whatever reason it is, if you've spent your life refusing the love of God, make this morning the last morning that's true of you. And if you don't know where or how to start, I just want you to start with a simple prayer. And it comes right out of Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Jesus gave himself over to the consequences of our sin so that we wouldn't have to experience them. His love is so great that he laid his life down for us and then overcame death and rose to life again. And he offers that risen life to us so that we will never have to experience a moment apart from him again in this life and in the life to come. He doesn't send us to hell, but he'll let us go there if we want to. And I'm telling you that you don't want to. You don't want to. I'm going to pray in just a second, and then I'm going to go right over to that little banner that says prayer. And if that's you this morning, if you've been refusing the love of God, if you've been running from him, come pray with me. Come talk with me. Let's make this the last morning that that's true of you. And one last quick thing. As the band comes back up, I want to talk to the other people in the room. If you have experienced what it's like to receive the love of God, don't you want other people to experience it too? If you've experienced what it's like to live a life in his presence, doesn't it break your heart to know that people are living life apart from his presence? It should. We're approaching this holiday season. We are about to be around family and friends who are actively refusing the love of Jesus. And many of them are doing it because they have this warped, perverted view of heaven and hell. Because they're not like a cloud city with, with streets of gold in the sky doesn't excite them. Right? Or they can't believe in a God who, who is sadistic and malevolent and eternally tortures people in this underground medieval torture chamber. And I'm telling you, a lot of that's our collective fault. We have taken these unbiblical images of heaven and hell and we've given them, we've disseminated them to the world and no wonder people are like, I don't want any part of that. So this Thanksgiving, this Christmas, as you are around people who have actively refused God's love, who have turned their backs on his presence, tell them the truth about these things. 
Tell them what the Bible actually says about these things. Tell them about the one who gave himself over to the worst suffering imaginable so that we wouldn't have to experience it. Tell them about the God who is love. Let me pray. God, thank you that the truth of your word is always so much better than the lies that we've chosen to believe. Thank you that you care for us more than we could ever know. Thank you that you love us more deeply than we could ever fathom. God, I pray that if we've never experienced that love, if we've refused it for whatever reason, that you would make today the last day that's true. God, and I pray for those of us who have experienced it, God, that you would stir our hearts for those who haven't, the people that are our family and our friends that we are going to be around over the next few days and weeks. God, help us tell them the truth about who you are and about what you've done. Move in us and move in them, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.